Please take a Bible and turn to 1 Samuel 11. We're continuing our series that we've been in as a church, going through 1st and 2nd Samuel. At the beginning of every school day as a kid, we would stand up, put our hands over our hearts, and say these words, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Every day, over and over again, as kids, we would pledge our allegiance, make this solemn promise, this commitment of our loyalty to our country. But that's a pretty safe place to do that. As kids, when you're there, you're in a classroom to make that kind of a pledge. Some of you have had that pledge tested. Maybe you fought for our country. But most of us never have. We've never felt the pressures, the threat that would actually make us show that we are committed, we are loyal, our allegiance is strong to this country. Imagine if we were invaded and this, this army, this battlefront is inching its way closer and closer here to Illinois. Uh, they're just marching across the states. And they've, they've now made it to St. Charles uh, and we're surrounded. And the threat then of death or torture is, is facing you. Do you, think, do you think then you'd be tempted at least to defect? If you could make a deal with the enemy that would save your life, that would save you or your family from torture, would you be tempted to cut that deal? Here, this is, the, this is the situation that some of the people in Israel are facing in 1 Samuel 11. If you're there, read with me. Read along with me in verse 1. I'll read it out loud. It says, Nahash the Ammonite came up and laid siege to Jabesh-Gilead. All the men of Jabesh said to him, Make a treaty with us. And we will serve you. Before jumping into this passage, let's just do a little bit of where we've been so far. So previously in 1 Samuel, uh, we talked about how the book is telling this story about how God's people became a nation, became a kingdom. uh, How they started having kings because the end of Judges finishes by saying there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so there was this, uh, this sense that the beginning of 1 Samuel was that there is a felt need for a king. But then as we went through those chapters, we see that the, the nation of Israel, God's people are actually desiring a king in the wrong way and for the wrong reasons, that it was out of the rebellion that was in their heart that they wanted a king. Uh, So they they say to Samuel that because of our enemies, give us a king like the other nations. Uh, And God actually reveals their hearts. He says to Samuel, they are rejecting me as their king. So their desire for a king in and of itself 
uh, is what was going to be God's plan, but the way that they were wanting it, the way that they were pursuing it, the reasons because of their rejection of God as their true king was revealing their hearts. But God said to Samuel, I will give them a king anyway. And so God chooses Saul and appoints Saul to be their king over them. Uh, And we see in chapters 9 and 10 that that Samuel anoints Saul privately first. And then the end of chapter 10, there's this public ceremony uh, where Samuel says, "This, this man Saul is the one that the Lord has chosen. And it says, all the people cry out, long live the king. But then at the end of chapter 10, there's this setup. Uh, it's, like, it's like at the end of a show when it's in a series or the end of a movie when you know there's going to be a sequel, the, the, the camera pans to this group of scoundrels. Uh, CSB calls them the wicked men. NIV calls them scoundrels. I think ESV calls them worthless fellows. And so whatever translation you want to use there, there's, there's the bad guys here. And here's the line that they're given to end chapter 10. They say, how can this guy save us? Um, this is what you've maybe felt on election night or something like that, where you're, you're looking at oh, this guy the, the language they're using, how can this guy save us? But that word save there is actually going to kick us into a section uh, that we see here in chapter 11 because it naturally raises the question, saved from what? What was it that they needed saved from? In chapter 9, we see this Philistine threat. But then in chapter 11, we're actually going to see another enemy who's attacking them from the other side. So let's, let's read verses 1 through 3 of chapter 11 and begin to see the situation, the vulnerability, the attack that the Israelites were facing. Nahash the Ammonite came up, laid siege to Jabesh-Gilead. All the men of Jabesh said to him, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. Nahash the Ammonite replied, I'll make one with you on this condition, that I gouge out everyone's right eye and humiliate all Israel. Don't do anything to us for seven days, the elders of Jabesh said to him. Let us send messengers throughout the territory of Israel. If no one saves us, we will surrender to you. In chapter 9, Verse 16, God describes that he would anoint this king who would bring salvation, would bring deliverance to his people from the hand of the Philistines. But in chapter 12, verse 12, Samuel actually says that it's Nahash and his attack, the Ammonites, that prompted God's people to say, we need a king. 12, 12. Uh, It says, it's when Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, was coming against you that you said to me, no, we must have a king reign over us, even though the Lord is your king. I'm going to put a map on the screen just to show us a little bit of the pressure that the nation of Israel was under. Uh, So the center of the map there, that's where the tribes of Israel were spread from the Dead Sea up through the Sea of Galilee. And on the western side, that's where the Philistines were. And so perpetually, they're, they're pushing in on Israel. And we see all these battles that take place over on that side with the Philistines. And we're going to see more of them as we continue on in 1 Samuel. 
But then it's on the east side is where Nahash and the Ammonites are. And so they, they are pressuring from the east. And so there's this vulnerable nation. They're divided. They, they have no king. And their enemies are seeing that. And they're, they're seeing the vulnerability. And they're bringing these attacks coming from both angles. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, it was a discovery um, 1940s, I think, if I remember right. I don't remember. Somewhere back, back around there. They, they found this scroll that actually had a little bit more background information. Uh, one of the translations, NRSV, I think, actually includes some of this background information in between chapters 10 and 11. And it just tells us a little more of what Nahash was like. It says, uh, now Nahash, king of the Ammonites, had been oppressing the Gadites and the Reubenites grievously gouging out the right eye of each of them and allowing Israel no deliverer. No men of the Israelites who were across the Jordan remained whose right eye, Nahash, king of the Ammonites, had not gouged out. But 7,000 men had escaped from the Ammonites and entered into Jabesh-Gilead. So that's why on the screen there I'm showing the Ammonites actually come down south first and then start working their way up because they had already attacked and oppressed and gouged out eyes from the tribe of Gad and then Reuben, which would have been up, and then up there, they're, they're pushing them. It says 7,000 of them had escaped and now they're at Jabesh Gilead and now they're trapped there. Nahash is continuing to bring that opposition and that's why they're ready to make a treaty. The word Nahash, if you were an original reader, uh, of this would have jumped off the page at you because Nahash is the word serpent. And so as they read here of this king, as they were experiencing this king in God's providence, the way that he has orchestrated uh, history and the writing here of this book is that the very first anointed king of Israel facing his very first battle, his very first test as king, as the anointed king, how can this guy save us? Save us from what? Save us from who? Save us from the serpent king, Nahash. In Genesis 3, you, you can see this. I'll put this on the screen here. Genesis 3 says, The Lord God had said to the Nahash, Because you've done this, you are cursed I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Uh, this is where maybe you've heard of Jesus being called the head crusher. Uh, he crushes the head of the serpent. Uh, and this is the very first glimpse of the gospel that, that this serpent who came and, and tempted Adam and Eve and brought this evil into the world, that, that his offspring and the offspring of the woman would, would constantly be at odds with one another. And, and you, you can actually see the writers of Scripture weave that theme all the way through ultimately pointing toward Jesus who would crush the head of Satan, who Revelation calls that old dragon, the ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan. And so here, 
This king in God's providence has the name Nahash and you have to imagine that the readers of this or those who are experiencing this at this time are making those kinds of connections. Maybe even wondering at the time, is Saul this promised offspring of the woman? Is he the one who's going to crush? Is this the Nahash who's going to to be crushed in his head? We can see the, the kind of pressure that they were under that made them want to cut a deal, cut a covenant. The words there in verse 1 where it says they, they're asking him to make a treaty. It, it is the language of cut a covenant. And so here God's covenant people are using this language of can I cut a covenant with you, the Nakash? this serpent king, and will you then be our king? And by, by doing that, they're rejecting Yahweh as their king, God as their king. They're rejecting Saul as their king, and they're saying, this guy, this Nahash king, maybe he will go easy on us if we promise to serve him, if we reject our allegiance to God and serve Nahash. And Nahash uses some of their same language, so, so in, in the Old Testament, this covenant language that you see when it talks about cutting a covenant, they would typically cut an animal in half, place it on both sides and walk through it. It was, it was this ceremonial way of them saying, the way that this animal is cut here in half, let that be done to me if I break this vow, if I break this covenant. And so they use that language. And so they're saying, Nahash, can we cut a covenant with you? Make you our king. We will serve you And he says, I'll cut one with you, but here's how I will cut. I will cut out your right eye. Historians have said that in battle, the people would typically hold a shield in their left hand and cover the left side of their body, cover their their left eye, and then then fight with their right hand because most people are right-handed. And so cutting out the right eye was this way of making them unable to fight back. So essentially he's saying, I I will let you live. You can be my servants. You can be my slaves, but you will not ever be able to revolt. You'll be unable to rise against me, permanently making you my subjects, my slaves. And so here, people of Israel say, we need someone to save us. And they ask him, can we have seven days to look for a savior Someone who can save us. If no one saves us, then we will surrender to you. I don't know why Nahash granted them that request. It doesn't tell us. Maybe overconfidence, maybe some other strategic reason. Uh, But he says, okay, go ahead and you can look. You think about this, think of the, the ways that God's people are under attack by an evil serpent, an evil Nahash. What are ways under pressure, under threats, under temptation that we are tempted to abandon our allegiance to God as our king and look to make a deal with evil kings, with the evil serpent? I want you to to think right now, what are ways, even if you here say, no, I am committed to King Jesus, I am following him, what are ways that you're most vulnerable to compromise? 
most vulnerable to give in, most vulnerable to look for other saviors, other kings, to make a treaty, to to cut a deal, to compromise just a little bit. I want to give two categories of suggestions to think about. When Jesus was describing people who express faith in him, but then fall away. Uh, Trust in him, but then turn away from him. He used a parable of a seed that's spread out on different types of soils. And he's he's giving two main dangers for those that, that appear to be following Jesus, but then drift away. The first, he describes it like stony ground. And so the roots go in, but they, they hit this rock and they're not, able to, they're not able to go deep and the plant withers and dies. And he says, that's like someone who expresses trust in Jesus, but then the difficulties, the hardships, the trials and suffering of this life proves too hard and they turn away from God. It could be relationship struggle or just complete disrepair, financial problems and burdens, abusive situation, disease, sickness, death of someone very close to you. Lots of tragedies that could be creating this kind of pressure. And and in that moment, maybe it's not even just one huge thing, but maybe it's what they describe as like this death by thousand paper cuts where it's just built up over time and you're becoming more and more vulnerable. Looking for other kings, saying, God, if this is how my life is, I don't even know if I want to follow you. And then looking for other ways out, looking for solutions in lesser or even evil saviors. Jesus gives another category though. Maybe for you the the, the pressure, the threat, the attack isn't the hard suffering in your life. Instead, it's kind of this opposite side of the evil things of this world are too tempting, too alluring. Jesus says that this is like a thorny ground, a plant that that springs up, but then it gets choked out by all the thorns and the weeds. And and he says for some people, they express that they believe in God, but but then the the temptations, the cares, the, the promise, the allure, the pleasure of this world becomes so attractive that that pressure is building up and it just, you give in to it. So I'm going to make this my God. Make a treaty with this. I'll align myself here with the pleasures of this world. What we see next, though, is that even when God's people experience vicious attacks by an evil serpent, God provides a savior king. It's it's amazing as we start reading through this how much that word deliver or save shows up here in this passage. Let's read verses 4 through 13 and see God's people delivered by a savior king. When the messengers came to Gibeah, Saul's hometown, and told the terms to the people, all wept aloud. So this is, this is where they said to Nahash, can we, can we go send for a rescuer? So these messengers come, they're telling. 
And it says, all of them wept aloud as they heard what was about to happen. Then verse 5, just then Saul was coming in from the field behind his oxen. It says at the end of chapter 10 that Saul went home. And so he's, he's home right now. He hears this message and he says, what's the matter with the people? Why are they weeping? Saul inquired. They repeated to him the words from the men of Jabesh. When Saul heard these words, the Spirit of God suddenly came powerfully on him, and his anger burned furiously. He took a team of oxen, cut them in pieces, and sent them throughout the territory of Israel by messengers who said, This is what will be done to the ox of anyone who doesn't march behind Saul and Samuel. As a result, the terror of the Lord fell on the people, and they went out united. Saul counted them at Bezek. There were 300,000 Israelites, 30,000 men from Judah. And he told the messengers who had come, tell this to the men of Jabesh Gilead. So he sends a message, message back to them. Deliverance will be yours tomorrow by the time the sun is hot. So the messengers told the men of Jabesh and they rejoiced. Then the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Tomorrow we will come out, and you can do whatever you want to us. The next day, Saul organized the troops into three divisions. During the morning watch, they invaded the Ammonite camp and slaughtered them until the heat of the day. There were survivors, but they were so scattered that no two of them were left together. Afterward, the people said to Samuel, Who said that Saul should not reign over us? Give us those men so we can kill them. But Saul ordered, no one will be executed this day. For today, the Lord has provided deliverance in Israel. This theme of salvation comes all the way through a few of these chapters. Uh, if you were here a few weeks ago when Joe Jones preached uh, chapters 9 and 10, he focused in on verse 16 where God says, I will anoint for you a king. I will send you a king who will deliver his people from the hands of the Philistines. Uh, that word deliver is the word for save. In 1 Samuel 10, 27, remember that was the question that, that tipped off this whole, started off this whole chapter, were, were those, those scoundrels who said, how can this guy save us? In, in that section that I read that was found, the background information, uh, it says that Nahash was allowing no deliverer. It's the word for savior there. No savior for his people. And then in this chapter, verse 3, says that when they say, let us send out for someone to, to help us, if no one saves us, says in verse 3. Verse 9 says, deliverance will be yours tomorrow. And then verse 13, the summary is, Saul says, the Lord has provided deliverance or salvation in Israel. When we hear the word saved or salvation, we're, we're, we're immediately thinking New Testament, the, the way that it's been applied, we're thinking of saved from our sins, uh, forgiveness, redemption. So we're thinking of those kinds of spiritual forgiveness and relationship restored with God. But the, the root of it is actually a military victory, 
a rescue, a, a, a people who are under this kind of oppression and attack and they need someone from the outside who can come defeat the enemy and provide this kind of rescue or deliverance or salvation. And so taking these two things together, that all the language of salvation that's, that's here and this connection to this evil king's name is the serpent, uh, we see all of these pointers toward what Jesus ultimately would do. This is one of the main contributions of, of 1 Samuel 11 to, to the, the God's people, their understanding of who Messiah would be and what Messiah would do. We, we learn here that Messiah, this anointed one, is someone who would bring rescue for his people. And so Saul here, there's, there's three ways that he, he looks like Jesus here in this passage. Three ways that he, he begins to help us understand what all would the Messiah need to do. It, it, at first it says that he is filled with the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit came powerfully on him, it says, and then he burns with anger. This is, this is the same language that shows up a few different times in the judges, like, like Samson. You can read some of this exact same language where God's spirit comes powerfully on him and then he accomplishes this kind of rescue, uh, victory, conquering the enemy of God's people. And so here, this, the, the Holy Spirit is a little different from what Jesus promised after his resurrection and ascension that, that, that we have for the Holy Spirit. It wasn't this, this conversion experience necessarily or this regeneration or, or new life. We're going to see Saul many times turning far away from the Lord in the future. But, but here in the Old Testament, God's Spirit would descend upon often military leaders and, and rulers of God's people for them to accomplish specific tasks and, and ministries and empowering them for this task. But it's, it's also interesting here for us to see that one of the responses Saul had when the Spirit comes on him, it says that he's angry with the injustice and the evil that he is seeing. I, I think as we want to apply 1 Samuel 11 to our lives, how, what's this mean for us? We're going to see ourselves identifying more often with the people there in Jabesh Gilead that were in need of a rescue. Uh, that were uh, flirting with making this allegiance with the enemy, uh, needing a savior to come. And so we'll, we'll draw most of our applications from there, but there are some things for us to learn from Saul as well because this is Saul's one shining moment. This is, from, from here on out, after chapter 11, Saul's gonna go downhill and we'll see, we'll see that described as his life begins to spiral out of control. But but let's give him credit here in chapter 11. We are seeing good things, a good, hopeful beginning to this kingdom for Saul. And so it is, though, telling that even in this chapter, even Saul's own language and then this passage, this, this verse here where it says that the, the spirit of Yahweh descended upon Saul, we're seeing it's not Saul. It's not how good he is. It's not just the fact that Israel now has a king and so all the people can say, see, we were right. We just needed a king and now we can defeat our enemies. No, the theme of this chapter is, see, it's not Saul. It's not that he's a king. It's that Saul had God's spirit. 
that God's spirit was on him and working through him and accomplishing this. We'll see later that Saul fails miserably when he gets ahead of God. He gets, he's not depending on God. He's not seeking first God's kingdom when he, when he tries to do things his own way. And this is helpful for us to remember as well. Like Jesus who says, without me you can do nothing. Uh, these these commands for us to be filled with the Holy Spirit, that for us as a church, both leaders of this church and every member of this church, for us to, to realize that without God, without his spirit, we can accomplish nothing for his glory. We desperately need him. We need to depend on the Holy Spirit. But what do we see here from Saul that, that points us toward our Savior? He's Filled with the Holy Spirit, he leads then in this defeat of the enemy. Uh, as he rallies the troops, he rallies this united front in Israel. He marches in then and defeats this enemy, this evil serpent king, defeats him. And then, though, at the end, what we read is what did all the people want to do? Well, they're, they're seeing, they're, they're celebrating, they're seeing this victory, they're, they're on this high of this, this battle, they had just routed the enemy. And now they say, okay, let's, let's unite as a country, let's unite under King Saul. Well, remember there were some guys who didn't want Saul, let's gather them up and kill them. And what does Saul then do? In verse 13, Saul says, no one will be executed this day, for today the Lord has provided deliverance in Israel. So Saul, filled with the Holy Spirit, defeats the enemy and then administers mercy and grace to those who had turned against him. These are all ways that are pointing toward what a true Messiah would one day do. How Jesus came filled with the Holy Spirit. How he defeated our greatest enemy by living in our place, dying for our sins, conquering sin and death, rising again to show that he is victorious and that he administers mercy and grace toward those who have turned on him. But Then we see the end of this story as Samuel calls then the people to pledge their allegiance to the king. Verse 14, Samuel said to the people, come, let's go to Gilgal so we can renew the kingship there. So all the people went to Gilgal and there in the Lord's presence, they made Saul king. There they sacrificed fellowship offerings in the Lord's presence. And Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. I think it's left a little bit intentionally vague when it says, Samuel says, let's renew the kingship. Is this Saul's kingship or is this God's kingship? Because already there was this theme leading up to these chapters where in chapter 8, God says to Samuel, they haven't rejected you, they've rejected me from being their king. So in the way that they were, were following after Saul, the way that they had chosen this king, they had rejected Yahweh, rejected God from being their king. And so Samuel now is, is calling this people back to, to, to recognize God as the true king of Israel, but also then to recognize Saul as the anointed king of Israel. Because Saul also had people who had turned on him. Those in Jabesh Gilead had 
They didn't make the treaty, but they had offered to make that treaty to this foreign king, this pagan king. Uh, and then those men that Saul just forgave, they had, they had said, how can this guy save us? In, in their language there, they, it had to be more than just a, a question of, of whether or not Saul could accomplish this. No, there was treasonous desires in them. We don't want the Lord's anointed king here. And so Samuel is calling them to Gilgal. Let's go in this ceremonial way, in the Lord's presence. Twice it says that. In, in Yahweh's presence presence, offering sacrifices to him. And so they are renewing both their allegiance to Saul and their allegiance to their Lord. No doubt there are some here today that have never pledged their allegiance to King Jesus. The Bible tells us that all of us are born dead in our sins dead in our trespasses and sins. A message that Brandon preached a couple weeks ago talks about how God transfers us from what? A kingdom of darkness, because that's what we're born into. A kingdom of darkness. And he transfers us into the kingdom of his son. But, But maybe you're here and that's never happened. Maybe you didn't even know it, but just hearing this, you're saying, oh yeah, I've never submitted to Jesus as my king never believed that that he conquered all of my greatest enemies of sin and death and hell, that he did that by living in my place, dying for my sins, and, and he rose again and is now ruling and reigning, and I'm trusting in him. And God promises that all, all who place their trust in Christ, that he is a savior king, making that allegiance to him. There's there's no hidden downside. There's no teeth. There's no promise that, okay, but I'm going to cut out your eye. That's, That's what Satan's kingdom promises and leads to. And maybe it looks alluring right now, but it leads to destruction and death. Jesus is a savior king. And if you place your trust in him, you can know. You can know that he will administer mercy and grace, inviting you into his kingdom, into his family. Many of you, maybe most of you have done that. You're saying, yes, I'm trusting in Jesus. But even hearing this, though, you're recognizing, but I need to renew my allegiance. Maybe in various ways you've, fraternized with the enemy, flirted with evil, flirted with the temptation of aligning yourself with other saviors, with other kings. And here, just like Samuel did to God's people, he says, let's let's come and renew our allegiance to the king. Let's let's remember the words of Jesus in, in Matthew 6, where he says, no one can serve two masters, Either you'll love the one and hate the other. You'll hold to the one, despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So here today, April 16th, 2023, in the 1045 service at New Covenant Bible Church, like Gilgal, this could be a place, a memory where you say, I'm renewing my allegiance to King Jesus. 
You're aware. God's spirit is, is prompting you of ways where you're feeling that pull away. And here you can make, make that renewal of your commitment to him. But it's likely not going to just be today. Because what we need more is kind of like what we did as kids. This daily pledge. This daily renewal. This daily commitment of, of God, yeah, I'm tempted, I'm pulled, I'm prone to wonder, but I'm renewing, I am pledging my allegiance to the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. I will look to no other saviors. I will look to no other kings. I am putting all of my hope in you alone, King Jesus. Let's pray.